Hello and welcome again to Fascinate Pod with me, Sam Brown. Today's guest is such an interesting fellow. His name's John Fowler, and during this podcast, he recounts to me some of the amazing stories he had from his time living and working in the Virunga Mountains. If you don't know anything about the Virunga Mountains, there are a range of volcanoes in East Africa, joining Rwanda, Uganda, and the Congo, and it's where Diane Fossey set up a legendary mountain gorilla research center, Karasoki. Now, John spent a whole year there. He's written a book about it, which you are going to hear all about, including stories about his close personal connections with these magnificent beasts. Right, let's get started. Here's John Fowler. All right then, John, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Hello. I really appreciate you coming on, and I'm really excited to learn a lot more about gorillas. There's something so fascinating. Well, I love nature. I love wildlife, but... There's something about gorillas that's a little bit different, isn't there? That you can maybe see that they're so like us? Well, yes, they really are. Uh, thank you uh, for having me today, too, by the way. And uh, yes, uh, gorillas are very special uh, and great apes in general in that it's animals in their closest form to humans, which actually humans are animals anyway. So um, I think a lot of people yeah. connect with uh, the great apes immediately because of the similarities being so obvious. Yeah, I think just when when you like look at their hands or their eyes, like you can really tell mm-hmm. this, uh, like the facial expressions that there's, yep. there's so much going on in there. We're just a few chromosomes away. We are. You've written your book recently, which is titled "A Forest in the Clouds: My Year Among the Mountain Gorillas in the Remote Enclave of Diane Fossey." Now we'll get onto Diane Fossey in a in a little while, and I'm sure we'll hear about sort of your motivations for for moving as well. But I suppose what I really want to know is what did you find when you made that decision to move to Africa? What did you find when you arrived at the research center? Well, I'd been to Africa the the summer before, and uh, I was there on a study abroad program out of a university here in the U.S., uh, Georgia Tech. And uh, I was a student at the University of Georgia, another university in the same state. And uh, that summer abroad program was... Uh, you know, what I had dreamed Africa was like. Uh, We were in East Africa, in Kenya, on the savannas, um, studying the uh, various and myriad species uh, of animals that you can see there in great abundance. And uh, so Rwanda and Karasoki was quite a bit different than that. Uh, It was, um, we had initially come into Kigali and and which is the capital city of uh, Rwanda, and it was a much smaller city back then. And uh, we were taken up to Karasoki Research Center, and I was really struck by the beauty of the Virunga volcanoes just upon approach. Uh, you're in this high-altitude uh, climate at 8,000 feet just as you approach the volcanoes, and then uh, you have to begin this hike upward. And I'd heard it could be cold, but I didn't realize how cold it was And in our first hike up this trail to camp um it was it had started raining and it was pouring rain and that rain turned to big pebbles of hail which began to cover the ground and covered the ground in several inches as we were climbing and i thought this is 
This is not crazy. No, this is more, Africa. Than, more than I imagined. Uh, but then, it, you know, once once the rain, we, we traveled through that. It was real difficult to climb up the trail. It became muddy, and even a stream formed, you know, where we were walking. And um, and then once the air cleared and the sky cleared and the sun came out again, we were up in these uh, volcanoes of the three volcanoes that where Karasoki is nested. And it's named Karasoki because it sits in the saddle area between Karasimbi and Mount Karasimbi and Mount Fasoki. And then in, in the distance off in the Congo, which is Zaire, at the time it was named Zaire, is this Mount Makeno, which uh, was was shining in the sunlight. And it's this big rocky monolith. And at that point, we were at 10,000 feet up. So it was very cool mountain air um, after the storm. Uh, and soon the mists swept in. And that's why Diane Fossey's own book is called Gorillas in the Mist, because you're in the mist much of the time. And, it, and my book is called uh, Forest in the Clouds, because it, it's bathed in clouds so much of the time. Is it actually that cold most of the year then? I imagine it gets pretty hot there, doesn't it? It's a, it's a cold mountain climate at 10,000 feet, even though it's very close to the equator. It's very, just a few degrees from the equator. But during the dry season, when it warms up during the day and the, the air is dry, the nighttime temperatures might get down very cold. And on some occasions, there were frost. Uh, there was frost on the ground uh, when we wake up in the mornings, and certainly up on the mountain, higher areas, it's you're actually in an alpine climate where there's often light freezes in the morning. How do you deal with the cold then? You layer. We layered our clothing because we would start out in the morning and it would be very cold and we'd start hiking. If you're going downhill, you might stay cool and comfortable, but if you started to go uphill, you would start breaking a sweat and overheat. And as soon as you would stop, though, and become still again, once you located the gorillas and were sitting with them, you would then become cold again. And we had to also keep rain gear uh, in our backpacks as we traveled so that... Uh, in the event of a downpour, which would come up quite frequently, you'd put that on uh, to prevent uh, yourself from getting, well, you'd, you'd try to prevent yourself from getting soaked, but you would usually end up getting soaked anyway. It was almost like being under a waterfall. These uh, rain downpours were so heavy. Wow. So what what exactly were you doing there? It's Karasaki Research Center. Were you carrying out the research? Well, I went there with the understanding that uh, I would be doing research of my own, and I was sponsored by uh, Dr. Terry Maple, a professor from Georgia Tech in Atlanta, Georgia at the time. And he um, he had come up with a couple of research proposals that would be uh, relevant for me to do while I was there as an undergraduate and hopefully as a graduate student. So I, I brought those with me and uh, showed those to Diane. But I came to realize that Diane had a different agenda for us new coming, new incoming students that really she wanted us taking the notes for her work and her articles and her the book she was working on as well, for that matter. How did that sit with you? I went there with, with a warning that she would be very difficult and really ultimately I would be there just to help her if, if that's what it came to. So, so I was kind of semi-prepared to adjust to anything and, and I I wasn't a graduate student with uh, an agenda for research of my own, and I, um, I believe that's why she picked me, uh, this undergraduate. <laughs> and another student who was there, Carolyn, who traveled with me over there from 
she was from the west coast of the U.S. <clears throat> she was an English major, an English literature major. She didn't even have a biology or zoology or behavior or psychology study background. And, and so we did become aware that uh, she was looking for people to carry out her, uh, her mission rather than any missions of their own. I had to be flexible. You had to be, yeah. And also, also this, uh, at the time I arrived, there was a baby gorilla in camp that had been confiscated from poachers and she, she wanted somebody to help with that. And I was happy to take on that assignment, um, cause I, I loved working with animals hands on and, uh, grew up with a lot of animals and, and I knew that was important to her and I knew it was important for the baby and for, uh, its survival and whatever we were going to come to do with this, uh, this confiscated orphan. And so, um, I was happy to take that on. What an experience. Did you create quite a bond with this? Yeah, it really, it, because of their human-like qualities, it really is like having a, a little child with you. They're also very, de it's a very demanding thing to have, uh, you know, it's demanding to have a child and it's a very demanding thing to have a baby mm -hmm. gorilla. It's not something that's just uh, fun and games. It's a big responsibility. And I, I would take the baby in the morning and, and have it for uh, eight hours during the day. I'd, and what would you do with it then? Would you, what was your job? Was it to play or to take it out? I was its caregiver and uh, we would, I would take it out into the forest edge to feed on its natural food so it could have basically a normal gorilla day. So my job was being uh, this other gorilla in this group of two gorillas, me and the baby. And uh, we were just uh, a pair a human gorilla pair living up in the forest. So do you have to teach it then to, to, to know which fruits it can go for? Which... It was estimated to be about three years old, so it had fed on its own already. So really I was learning from it about the gorilla foods. I would take it out into the forest edge and it would go and grab a handful of um, the, the nettles that they eat or grab a handful of the gallium or thistle or wild celery. She knew She knew her own foods. What happened to this gorilla then? Did it ever get back into its native habitat, like with other gorillas? Was it reintegrated? But that, that's a big part of the story. That's a, that's a mm. big part of the book. But I'll tell you what, that was one of the issues. See, Diane was, when I um, came into camp, Diane was kind of being maneuvered and finessed out of Karasoki and out of camp because of, you know, she'd already had the reputation of having uh, tortured poachers set fire to a, a someone's home, kidnapped a child, and really was well into doing drastic measures in her battle that had begun with poachers. And even the country of Rwanda, she wasn't uh, cooperative with uh, the people who were giving her her permits to stay there. Her, her productivity and research had diminished and she had alienated every student that had come in there uh, at one point or another. And so, there was a movement to get her situated into a teaching position in the U.S., something, you know, dignified for her to uh, to embark on other than being at Karasoki. So um, that's that's kind of what I fell into the middle of. And she was, this, this baby gorilla had landed right at this time. It was confiscated and brought to camp because she had helped... Um, rehabilitate two confiscated gorillas once before, Coco and Pucker, who were made famous in her a previous National Geographic article. So that was a dilemma that slowed 
her getting relocated out of Karasoki because she didn't know what she wanted to do with this baby gorilla. And she didn't want it to go to a zoo like Coco and Pucker had because they hadn't lived very long in the zoos when they were sent there. And sure. uh, so she did eventually come up with this idea to to release the gorilla back into the wild. So we had a, a big plan. She developed a plan to uh, release it into a group uh, four, which was a group that had been decimated by poachers and they were in a rebuilding stage and needed new members. And um, then she she wanted me to camp out in the wild with this gorilla in preparation for rewilding the gorilla. And that's uh, a big part of the book is my um, bivouac camp where I was out with this gorilla and then the subsequent release attempt. Uh, and then the, uh, she changed the plan because we couldn't locate the uh, original group that she wanted it to be released to. And um, we had another attempt with this other group that almost ended a disaster. I don't know what gorillas are like, really. I, I could imagine in, um, in human society, we're very wary of outsiders, aren't we? So if gorillas hold any of that type of... Right. Although these, gr these groups that uh, we had um, chosen for release, they were very habituated to uh, research students already. So they were groups that we were visiting daily and keeping up with, and they were, um, they were comfortable with our presence uh, coming to them every day. We hadn't shown up with a baby gorilla before, so that made things quite a bit different, especially with the uh, the day that we tried to release it mm. to Group 5. Have you ever felt in danger then, like personal danger from any of these really, you know, honestly huge animals? Well, a gorilla, uh, a silverback is meant to be a very intimidating, intimidating creature, and they have a scream that is meant to be very frightening, and it works. It, it does what it's intended to do. And the gorilla, a gorilla charging you does what it's intended to do. It's very intimidating and very frightening. Um, and it's supposed to be. Is there any chance of hearing what this may sound like? Yeah, if you go to Rwanda and go visit the gorillas, you can hear that. <laughs> <laughs> now, the scream I can't do because that's going to make too much noise here where I am. And I'm not necessarily the best impersonator of the gorilla scream. I'm not sure that a human can really do that adequately. But other vocalizations they have, like their typical belch vocalization that they do, it's a kind of a contact call within the group that they're doing continuously as they're moving along. It's just a subtle, it sounds like this. <laughs> we were told to, as we were approaching the gorillas to make that sound, because Diane had done that during her training, she thought mimicking the gorillas would make them feel more comfortable with her but you know, when I think back I think any sound would have been fine you know any kind of identifying sound of an approaching researcher would have worked you could have said hey we're here or whatever and they would have been used to that but um, yeah. we were supposed to make that sound when we approached and we did you, it became very automatic the uh, <laughs> and you know they would know you were there and then they have other vocalizations like um, <clears throat> they have uh, the pig grunt Diane called it, which is their displeasure sound or kind of a, it could also be a warning of behavior. Uh, you need to change your behavior, but it, it goes like this. It's almost like a cough. And um, some of the other sounds they made were like, 
One, one that a silverback does when he hears something and he wants the group to get quiet, he does one called a hick, and it's kind of a, you know, a, and it's real quick, and everybody just goes quiet in the group. It's kind of amazing. It's an alert to uh, presence of potential danger. More like that. I haven't made this sound in a long time. So. But then there's a, the chest beat, you know, of course, the uh, that they um, and and that's an upwelling sound from really deep. You can see when the when the silverback is making that, he's kind of rolling his neck and his head, and, and then he he taps his chest and and beats the sound uh, like in a staccato from him. Um, very uh, characteristic sound that you can hear that across the mountains. Even if you're, you know, hearing one from far away, you'll hear that. Uh, mm. Hearing the group, another group, you'll hear that sound. It carries very well among the mountains. Yeah, that to me sounds like one of the scariest noises that I could hear in the jungle. Oh, the chest beat up in the forest. Yeah, yeah, that, that's not as scary as a scream and a charge. <laughs> I hope you a get to hear that one charged? day. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Is, is that not? Uh, surely that's well, quite an I, aggressive uh, act. I, I was assigned to keeping up with Nunky's group, which was this group that Diane was writing about in her book at the time I was there. And she was also working on a National Geographic article about Nunky's group and how he uh, had become this, he was this lone male that showed up and was attracting females from other groups to build his own group. But he was kind of an interloper to the other guerrilla groups and uh, he he didn't have a big good territory of his own, so he kind of stayed up in the upper uh, altitudes of Mount Vesoki primarily, and he was very nervous about approach of, of people. He, he was habituated, but not real fully habituated to our presence, and he, did, he didn't like us showing up, and he didn't like me showing up, so he, he charged me almost every time I contacted him, and you have to hunker down, and, and I was instructed upon arrival to make yourself very vulnerable. You would collapse onto the ground on your side and you do this this just whimpering sound in order to assure them that you were not there to threaten them and that they would back off from that. But but still that, that scream, I mean, rattles right through your body. Yeah, I bet the adrenaline just spiked in your own body then. Oh, absolutely. And when we uh, finally did release the baby into a group... I went back to visit the baby, and I had spent so much time with her. Bonane became her name. Um, I had spent so much time with Bonane that uh, when I, I unwittingly approached the group, and she came uh, sauntering up to me and just plopped herself right in my lap. And this this silverback, Peanuts, had never seen anything like this before. And this was his his baby gorilla now and when he saw her come and sit in my lap he became very enraged and charged me and I mean it didn't end there he he came right over top of me and just hovered over me beating the ground beating his chest and screaming into my ears for a grueling 20 minutes this went on and uh, oh, wow. I had the baby in my lap and I was like, would you just go away? And I started to pull at the hairs of her legs <laughs> in a way where he couldn't see me just to make her uncomfortable. And she shifted a little bit at first and then she still wouldn't leave. And finally, it, it was, I just had to wait it out. 
And um, that was probably the most horrific and exhilarating experience, um, well, of my life, perhaps, because afterward, I, I, I see what some of these people that do things like um, skydiving or whatever, and they, they talk about this exhilaration they have afterwards, because um, after that experience, we were walking back, and, and Stuart, another student, was with me at the time, and he was not targeted in this, in this uh, onslaught. But I said, I've never felt so alive. It was like there was dopamines that were sent into my brain to recover from this traumatic experience. And uh, and it was really like, I said, I said, I don't know what it is, but I've never felt this alive before. And there was just a, a strange sensation that followed that, that sheer terror. Not one I'll seek out. I won't seek that out, however. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've felt that when i've been skiing quite a lot and when i've done a big jump or something and scared uh -huh. myself the the feeling yeah. afterwards you do right. just get a rush of i don't know what type of survive something mm -hmm. right. uh, so yeah it does it's um it's a funny phenomenon that yeah i was wondering as you were as you were telling that story though did you think that was it as the gorilla was on top of you screaming baring its teeth no what what you do is you keep telling yourself that uh these gorillas are meant to uh you know, they they would rather just intimidate than attack. I mean, it's a waste of energy to to, to attack something that isn't fighting back to you. But um, but it's a really level-headed approach what, at that point, right? What goes on through your mind is that you know gorillas are really safe. But what if, what if just this one time something snaps? And there was uh, one guy uh, who had been a student at Karasoki who had uh, had been attacked by a gorilla. So the incident had preceded this so you always just in the back of your mind you just think i hope this is not going to be one of those situations one of those rare situations uh that occurs and was he okay and it's your job to to help prevent that um oh he he did survive that yes mm -hmm. i've never heard of anyone actually being killed by a gorilla has it ever happened no i'm not aware of anyone being killed by a gorilla either I mean, they do have obviously they have the potential because of the, they have the, the ability. size mm -hmm. of them but yeah yeah it's nice to know that they're more gentle than that what do they right. eat typically oh they eat a lot of they're, they're vegetarians and uh, they only incidentally will they eat some insects thistles which are stinging the stinging thistles you might be familiar with which will sting you uh, physically sting our human hands but they they eat those i mean i imagine it being like some sort of spicy food but um <laughs> they seem to be impervious to it and there are other things that they eat uh, seasonally they'll eat they eat a lot of bamboo shoots when they come up in the lower altitudes that's a real favored food item for them they I'll break those coming up out of the ground and snap them open and they're full of that uh crunchy pith that used to see it pretty commonly in Chinese food, not not so much anymore, but um, that's one of their food items seasonally. Blackberries grow, a variety of blackberry grows in the Virungas uh, that uh, when they come into season, that's a real choice food for them. And, and they, they sing. I've, I've heard them singing when they're feeding on the blackberries. And that's that's kind of a rare vocalization that you hear, but um, it, it seems to be associated with when they're very uh, content, you hear maybe one of the females will start it and it'll start going like, and then you hear others start chiming in and there'll be this group of, 
and that that is the most human like sound that they make when you start hearing that if you were to hear it from a distance you might think you were hearing people talking it's a eerily amazing uh sound when you when you hear that how much do you think that they can communicate to each other you said it's like talking but is it like chanting together is that well, as far as communication, I wouldn't say that the like the vocalizations are complex communication like our speaking is, but uh, they're simple uh, signals for the most part. The the belch vocalization is is in a way when you're in this dense undergrowth and you hear that, you'll know that uh, Icarus is over there. You might hear a, and you know that Poppy is over here, and and they kind of. I believe know the locations of other individuals because they're making that sound as they travel along. Can you tell emotions from those just those snorts? They, they have emotion. They have sounds associated with emotions, and one of them is uh, the chuckling that they do when they're playing. It's a, a laughter, basically. It's a it's a gorilla laughter. So and, and it goes kind of like. A, <laughs> be doing that when i had the baby and i would tickle her on her sides she would make that that chuckling sound and it's, <laughs> that that's a very similar sound to their copulation vocalization which is a much which is a little more rapid intense version of that it's like <laughs> <laughs> and you can you can hear that off in the bushes and you know that uh, you know you go over there and sure enough they're doing it <laughs> <laughs> Can I just go back to something you said before, which was in the middle of your story, so I didn't want to cut you off. Sure. You were talking about Diane Fossey's sometimes questionable methods that she uh -huh. used, and you mentioned that she kidnapped a child. Uh -huh. Now, I've heard that before. What was the context there? How did she get away with kidnapping a child? Uh, well, it, it, was, it was a rural household, basically in one of these daub and waddle huts near the, um, near the park. And I don't know a lot of the details of the story, but, you know, when she she was there, she did mention it. You know, the, she said when that child was up here, he had the best time of his life. And I'm sure he didn't even want to leave, um, de kind of defending her action. But um, uh, because I think she indulged him once she got, he, he was brought up to camp. And um, but it was it was the house that she set fire to. She went down and basically raided a home that she thought was a poacher's home and then set fire to the house dragged one of the kids off with her and uh to the sheer terror of the child i'm sure but yeah. brought him up to camp then just it was just this visceral reaction to to the death of some of the research gorillas that she knew uh, that had been killed. So it was a... So it was a direct retaliation. It's just a retaliation. To... Yeah, it was a, a retaliation to that. Mm-hmm. And what was the response to other people in camp when that type of thing happens, when she sets fire to someone's house? Well, I mean... uh, that had happened years before I was there, so I, I don't know what people who were there at the time, uh, or, or if, you know, what students were there actually under, under those circumstances of that time. I don't know, I've never talked to anyone about that from that particular time period. But but it was dis disapproving. I mean, <laughs> nobody else uh, you know bought into that kind of level of of behavior. In fact, there was another movement there trying to uh, sensibly 
develop tourism and work within the um, the law uh, to help with guerrilla conservation rather than Diane's confrontational retaliation and, and ongoing battle that she she was having. Did you ever did you ever experience her unorthodox methods? Well, yeah, I mean, she was uh, she was arming the uh, Apocho Patrol group of men to go in and cut traps in the neighboring country. You know, there was no permit for that, no permit to wield weapons. Uh, and that was part of the problem the Rwandan government was having with her was that, you know, you can't be arming your own park guards and sending them out into a neighboring country without visas. And, wow. um, and that was all ongoing when I was, in fact, I, I participated in that because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I believed that the, that the traps needed to be cleared from from these areas. Uh, they weren't supposed to be there, but uh, but I certainly would draw the line at wanting to capture poachers or you know yeah. uh, carry a gun. I didn't carry guns or anything like that, but I, I know that some of the uh, patrolmen. So did. you're in Rwanda and neighboring. You have Congo, which used to be Zaire, and uh, Uganda. Mm-hmm. At the time, what was the relationship like between? those countries could people just cross over the borders without any issues yeah people did all the time in fact there was a, there was a trail coming in around the other side of mount vasoki that was a known coffee import route but it was not like a documented inroad for coffee but it was reputed that rwanda exported more coffee than they produced because coffee was brought in from Zaire to be sold out of Rwanda because the returns were better. It was more convenient to, to market from that part of Congo. And, uh, and that was done very freely. I mean, there were no border checks uh, in, the, in the Virungas up in the, uh, in the forest. So uh, ingress and egress were very easy and un- undocumented. And it was, it was not a problem in most cases. Now, if I were to be that w- when I was camping out with the baby gorilla, I was actually in Zaire. And if I had been found there by, by any patrol people or park staffers, or even the military of Zaire, the Congo, uh, that would have been a problem. Yeah, I would probably have been brought in as hostage into Zaire. So did that not worry you when you were sent on these missions to go and cut the traps? Uh, no, I, no, we, we were just so used to it and it was remote and seeing other people was so infrequent in that part, in that area that uh, but the poachers had a healthy fear of Diane's patrolman already. So uh, they would move the other way if they saw us. So I didn't really have that much of a fear. And I was at an age in my life where I wasn't so fearful or it wasn't that that I'm fearful now, I'm just a little more aware of things. I'm a little wiser. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just How my youthful, you I was uh, 23. So okay. um, I was naive. And um, even camping out with the baby gorilla, it ran through my mind that, you know, we're doing quite a sacrifice for Diane <laughs> as her minions. <laughs> I hope she appreciates it. But <laughs> I also wanted to do, you know, I wanted to do that work. I was uh, very much, uh, I, I believed in what we were doing and helping this baby gorilla and, uh, and also following these groups of gorillas and helping protect them and collect 
data on them and information on them. Do you feel like you made a big difference then while you were there? Some of the data that you collected, was that really useful in the conservation work that you were trying to do? Well, I didn't get to go on and pursue my particular research plans during the time that I was there. And uh, I, if anything, I contributed to the information Diane needed for her book, Gorillas in the Mist. And uh, I made a big impact in the life of that baby gorilla when I was there, you know, being its caretaker and also what would become its reintroduction into the wild. And two of us ended up staffing Karasoki and keeping it maintained and keeping the staff managed and the poacher patrols going out. For a while there was just another student, Peter and I, when Diane did go back to the States and start teaching at Cornell, we were there uh, running the camp and keeping it afloat. Yeah, I feel like it made a difference during that year to do that. Also, we I, I was involved with the uh, first darting of a uh, gorilla and removal of a snare from its arm. And uh, that's something that made a big difference in that gorilla's life. He would have been uh, sure to lose his hand or get an infection and die if not for our intervention. And that was uh, organized by um, Conrad and Rosalind Aveling, who were also featured in the story. They came uh, to uh, run the Mountain Gorilla Project, which was developing the uh, tourism with gorillas, taking it out of a disorganized, chaotic, sort of haphazard happenstance to a organized approach of developing tourism with the mountain gorillas that, uh, that led to really the success of Rwandan tourism today. And, uh, I wanted to ask you about Rwandan tourism, actually, because isn't uh -huh. there something that Diane was not a fan of? No, and she really resented this uh, mountain gorilla project that was doing this. It was started by Bill and uh, Bill uh, Weber and Amy Vetter, also with Jean-Pierre Vanderbeck and Sandy Harcourt, another one of uh, Diane Fossey's former students early on. And um, she she resented the hell out of it. it. It made sense to me immediately when I saw what they were doing. It, it made complete sense. But... Diane didn't allow herself to see the logic in everything uh, where it uh, kind of tread on her territory. She was more about uh, being territorial and uncooperative with uh, other other people involved with the mountain gorillas. She really mm. didn't like sharing the stage. But I feel like there is maybe quite a lot of negative things to be said about her approach, but if she had not have been around, do you think that the, the population of mountain gorillas would even still be there? Because there aren't really very many, are there? Yeah, well, when I was there, there were 250 in the Virungas. It was really down to its all-time low population. And Diane thought that they'd be uh, gone uh, within a few years. And there are now, last estimates, I think, were 600 individuals. It's up to... 600 and uh, including the gorillas over in the impenetrable forest, which is another 400. It's believed to be over a thousand mountain gorillas now. So the numbers have really improved, but it's still a very critical population because it's not a, a big po population for a species, an entire species. So, but, but Diane, she did put gorillas on the map, you know, with her, her stories from there and her tenacity of, of staying there it was part tenacious in part once she got the fame that she wanted and the adoration she held on to that very jealously 
Um, it really gave her a strong identity that she didn't have before. And I'm sure she probably identified with Jane Goodall early on before that. And Jane must have been a big inspiration for her. So to be like Jane Goodall is something that she, um, she preserved with great jealousy and vindication. But through that, through her efforts, she brought international attention to the plight of the mountain gorilla. She and did. Uh, the way she relayed her stories is what brought the other students there that would eventually take on the task of the work of Karasoki and also the great tourism industry that uh, it led to for the country. Even though she might not have been the best solution, she inspired the solution that would eventually come to be. Yeah, it's just a shame that she wouldn't be on board with something that's obviously going to do the mountain gorillas a lot of good. Yeah, it, it is a shame. It's a shame and it's hard to fathom. Everything led to kind of an alienation. She, she really, either you were with her or against her. And if you weren't doing her agenda, she really could not uh, even associate with you, with you in, the, in the slightest way. And then she would rationalize those... Uh, actions and reactions that she had in her own way. Although she herself was a tourist to the mountain gorillas, which her own tour of the mountain gorillas led to her, you know, being the, the one person that would bring uh, their plight to the world stage. Yeah, it's a shame she didn't see that at all. Um, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on zoos in general? I was speaking about this with someone that I had recently on the podcast, uh, Dr. Susan Chain. And I struggled with this a little bit because I don't know whether I, I definitely don't like seeing animals kept in small cages, but I mm -hmm. do recognize that, that there is a lot of value in the research that goes on and the support that they have, well, globally for repopulating areas or to, to help uh, local communities with things like increasing tourism so that they then in turn, a decrease in the amount of poaching that goes on. So mm. I, I'm in two minds. I just wonder what your opinion of zoos is. I think that zoos, uh, I, I had a career in zoo work after, uh, you know, field work. I uh, went into zoo work and I went in because I was attracted by this whole new movement that was taking foot in zoos. They're, they're not what they used to be decades of, ago where it was just a collection uh, to show to the public for entertainment purposes. They're um, very complex conservation and research-oriented institutions now in which a lot of work is done for uh, the welfare of animals in the wild. And the first order of business for them is to bring awareness to the public about animals in a way that, that can only happen if someone interacts with the actual animal alive. Not everyone can afford to go visit mountain gorillas or go see a, a monkey in the wild or a, an exotic bird or a, other animals go on safari and see uh, the herds of uh, spectacular wildlife in the grasslands. But uh, they can learn about it through zoos. And also zoos do a lot of preservation of species that are almost obliterated in the wild where the, the larger population of them now lives in zoos. The Arabian oryx is an example of that where uh, the zoo populations were larger than the few remaining in the wild and they were able to breed the oryx, this antelope, in captivity in order to bring the populations back up and attempt to reestablish them. 
in the wild. When I worked in at Zoo Atlanta, for example, I was involved with reintroduction of the peregrine falcon, which be, had become a, an endangered species here in the U.S. We coordinated a project with our state agencies and a private facility that bred peregrine falcons, and we were able to release them into the city of Atlanta and reintroduce the falcons to nesting habitat that was a potential for them that they maybe hadn't considered on their own by bringing them in and releasing them f from um, a location on top of a tall building in town. They set up a nesting population there, and now uh, peregrine falcons are using um, cities as a new habitat site as an alternative to the cliff sites that they were traditionally known to use. We also raised uh, a bald eagle for uh, reintroduction into the state of Georgia. We did that through ha our hand-rearing practices that only uh, people with you know, privatized facilities like zoos can do and release these animals back into the wild. Uh, another interesting example, too, of how, um, how captive animal populations have affected opinions of animals in the wild is this uh, story of Shamu at uh, uh, which you may be familiar with the killer whale uh, and the killer whales that were in captive situations in some of our uh, sea world, for example, here in the U.S. Yeah. Um, that became a very uh, big bone of contention between uh, people who thought that they shouldn't be captive and those who were uh, felt that it was good uh, public relations for a species. And in fact, no one really would have you know, it really was a double-edged sword where, where captivity may not have been the best place for a, uh, a killer whale, but no one would have cared about killer whales in the wild if they hadn't seen them in captivity first. If there hadn't been this persona of Shamu created uh, for people to care about and uh, the movies that were made, would people see sort of the humanity in this in this species so the very same thing that cultivated its awareness destroyed itself at the same time as people learned about this species cared about it and then shut it down it's almost like it ran its course uh, and and its intention and its useful era of these uh, orca whales these killer whales in captivity. They would have just been this fearsome creature like a shark out in the ocean if if all of that hadn't happened. Yeah, not sure where I sit with that. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, it, it just seems so cruel. I think once we realized how cruel it was to keep them in such small habitats, mm -hmm. it was only a matter of time that, that they needed to, to stop that practice. Yeah. Although it's still something that's going on at the moment, isn't it? They're, they're still opening up more SeaWorld centers in China, are they not? Uh, yeah, other, other countries haven't really adapted the policies uh, that, uh, that are, might be occurring in, in one place. Uh, mainly. So do you think that's going to happen in, in China then? People are going to see these beautiful, magnificent beasts, realize that they're maybe not suited for this habitat and will say that's enough we need to get them back in the ocean and look after the ocean a bit more like is, is well, it going to be a positive thing uh, well i hope that if it does happen it becomes that it becomes that positive thing because uh, a lot of populations uh, that consume wildlife unrelentingly need to develop a sense of awareness that other 
regions of the world have. So uh, if it does happen, I hope something good like that comes of it and and it ends. Yeah, it's that way. Right. But but yeah, it, it and it may be the only uh, way that uh, the Chinese will develop a sensitivity about it is is that up close and personal experience uh, that they have with them. But uh, it's it may not be a pleasant thing to watch. It's great that you can draw a positive from what well, I've always held as such a negative, such a negative act committed by humans. It's a very complicated thing. I also think, you know, if we, if we were to like phase out zoos, for example, say we would get rid of them by, you know, once and for all, and there'd be no zoos. An another generation would become very ignorant about animals. <laughs> I think, I think it would be, we would be entering into a new era of ignorance uh, because a lot is learned about animals too in zoos. People who, who work hands-on with them, learn about how to uh, propagate them in in a captive situation, learn about captive breeding, and the whooping crane being another one in, here in the U.S. having to intervene really with a wild population, raise their young for them to get them reestablished in the wild, and, and other species of birds, mammals, reptiles. A lot of that has been done. Uh, sea turtles, for example, their captive uh, captive breeding program or rearing of eggs for that and release. It's been a real supplement to uh, wild populations at a time when it's not looking very optimistic for wild populations. So just to uh, put an end to these captive programs doesn't seem wise to me because the wild populations aren't, aren't surviving so well either. You know, it's, it's more complicated than just the uh, thought of the well-being of an individual animal because Animals in zoos tend to live longer. They, you know, they 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 got room service. They're taken care of. I mean, they're kind of spoiled in many ways, and it varies by species. You know how much space they need. Some are in better situations than others. I think maybe this is the conclusion that I'm coming to. As long as there are rules put in place, and as long as these zoos are able to prove that they're benefiting the wildlife through what they're doing, and trying to avoid any mistreatment of the individuals that are there, then I think you can't complain about them too much. And like you say, you need to educate people. Well, I think maybe a really good tool for this is, you know, those VR headsets. You can put oh, your uh, phone into it and you've got a little headset yeah. on. You can look around. Um, I saw one not too long ago where you, you went diving and, you, and a, a huge whale just came by you. I wonder if that can be incorporated a little bit more into people's sort of learning about wildlife. I'd love to see that up at uh, Karasoki. Like a, so a virtual, a virtual, a virtual tour. Yeah. Hmm. May, that'd be you amazing, may be onto something it? there. Why don't you produce yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> that'd be great. Cause you know what? It costs 15,000, it costs $1,500 it costs $1, now to, to spend an hour with a gorilla in the wild. So, you know, it would be, that would be a bargain by comparison. <laughs> Yeah, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, I mean, it would. Yeah, I, how many thousands of people would spend? But you know what? It's not gonna. It's it's not gonna replace that experience. No, sure. Not the, you wouldn't the, get. You the got the adrenaline. you got the smells. You got the hike, the exhilarating walk, the uh, just the scenic beauty around you. So it, right. it would be it might the 15... encourage more people to go and get the real experience. <laughs> yeah, true. It would be inspiring. No doubt about that. 
have you seen a shift in people's attitudes towards nature over the over your career yes there's there's a lot of, well, there's a tremendous amount of more compassion to animals than ever before and certainly for my parents generation but um, we also live in a world where a lot of options are available so you know there's a big movement towards veganism and it's kind of a moral vegetarian where they're not eating animal protein because because of the moral issue of having to kill an animal to eat it but meanwhile animals are killing and eating animals all the time so you know humans have been doing this too and chimpanzees do it and it's it's not like it's abnormal to do it but i think it's a personal choice for individuals they feel better about themselves to do that but if you look at populations of people in developing countries they don't have the luxury to do that sort of thing if they get a source of animal protein it's such an important addition to their to their diet that they would be foolish to not take advantage of it um, yeah i i get that from like you say poorer countries i uh -huh. completely agree with you i i, do, I am yeah. of the belief though that if you are able to make that decision where you get your protein from or which source of of food you choose to eat then you're in such a powerful position and it's not only about that one individual animal, is it? It's, yeah. it's about the habitat of the thousands of animals that you might be destroying to be able to mm -hmm. rear that herd of cows, for example. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a, there's a lot to that argument, really. It's, it's one thing to, you know, it's to be a vegan that is going to their pantry and opening up, up a bag of chips or, or pulling a, a, a vegan hot dog out of a freezer and cooking that in your microwave to eat because because it's so readily available it's a different story if you're somewhere else and food is a real yeah. a lot harder to come by and would you be happy eating a roasted yam uh day after day after day after day <laughs> it definitely comes down to availability doesn't it if there is so much choice and there, mm -hmm. yeah in countries like america and, and like in the uk there are so many different options mm -hmm. nowadays for being vegetarian or vegan it's not a choice that everyone wants to make, and I understand that. Yeah. But it's it's now an option for so many people. It's only going to be a good thing, surely. Yep. Well, it's always been an option, and now it's a choice by a lot of people. But I see a lot of I see a lot of um, cheating going on too. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a beer. Yeah. As long as nobody's looking, I'll. I want to try that chicken. You made that with a fresh rosemary right out of your garden i gotta try i have a vegetarian <laughs> friend that does that <laughs> i make you know if i have vegetarian friends come over i make something vegetarian for them i make a really good grilled portobello mushroom that's sort of the the meat i provide to my vegan friends and they love it mushrooms but, are good yeah mm -hmm, yep because they're meaty <laughs> <laughs> but you know we do have movement here in the u.s of vegan dog foods now which i worry about the nutritional value of that because it's, it's not a natural food for a carnivore and uh, i know that there's been some trouble with people feeding cats vegan diets because they literally need uh -huh. that uh, animal protein. It's really the human imposing their value on the animal or the animal doesn't care. And, uh, mm -hmm. and what it wants is animal protein, usually. Well, these carnivores do. I think people, if they're going to make a decision on the food that they feed to a pet, surely uh -huh. they want the best for that pet. Well, I guess if you're choosing a vegan food, though, for your pet, you're kind of experimenting with your pet's well-being or to bring it into your your set of values 
Can I ask you a little bit more about what you did after returning from Rwanda? Mm-hmm. Did you go to any other countries? Have you been to do this sort of work again, or did, was well, that enough? I didn't go back and do field biology, but I, I did lead tours back to Africa. That's one thing that zoos do too, is they'll put together tours for um, people uh, in, in the area of wherever a zoo is. They'll put together these tour packages for people to travel to Africa, for example. Um, and I've been on trips like that as a, uh, a host of the trip, also to Australia, New Zealand, and to the Galap- Galapagos Islands. That's a wonderful place, a wonderful experience. And uh, because the animals are so visible and so naturally habituated, they're actually non-habituated because they they didn't really have a fear of of humans uh, from the get-go when people first arrived there. So uh, it's really a spectacular and beautiful place. Yeah, it's great that it's still a sort of a sanctuary that mm-hmm. humans haven't been able to go there and ruin it yet. I, I love Australia. My wife and I, I met my wife as a zookeeper at my first zoo I worked at. She was another zookeeper and we've been... Uh, married for 37 years now and uh congratulations thank you we did a work exchange early on in our career we arranged to do an a swap with another couple at a zoo in australia called hillsville sanctuary and it was all native australian species and they were the only place to have bred the platypus in fact and uh, we went and swapped homes and jobs with another couple and um, lived there for six months and had a wonderful experience and made some really good friends. And then we traveled uh, around Australia, just uh, spectacular uh, wildlife, especially bird life, some unusual mammals like the platypus and the echidnas, koalas and uh, all the species of wallabies and many possum species too. We have one possum here in North America that's our marsupial, but it's kind of a a lowly, unappreciated creature that resembles a large gray rat. <laughs> so it's not a real popular animal, but uh, they have a lot of beautiful uh, and varied species of possums there. I thought that marsupials were only in Australia. No, they uh, they extend up into um, the islands north of there, the island countries, and we have uh, some possums here in the New World, but very few. Interesting. Can we go back a little bit to Rwanda? I'm interested in how, how Rwanda's changed over the years because when you originally went there, I think it was, was it 1980, something like that? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's a very different place. You said you've, you've led trips back there. Have you noticed a lot of change in the people's well, attitude? Yeah, when I went back to Rwanda and I, I got to Kigali, it was unrecognizable to me. I mean, the... Uh, population today I think is around a million, close to a million people. It was a, about 130,000 people when I was there. They they had survived the um, the genocide. I, I When I was there, it was a very peaceful country. The, there had been a genocide, but it wasn't really covered by international news. So, uh, so there wasn't a lot of... That was of just aw- prior to you going. Let's see, a couple decades earlier, like early 60s. So okay. um, late 50s, early 60s. And people were very quiet about it. It was obviously a, a very horrific thing, too. But when I was there, was uh, Rwanda was very peaceful. Kigali was a small town. You could walk the streets easily. The embassy was in this little single-story flat building. When I went back years later, a new one was being built, and it had changed quite a bit. 
there were tall buildings everywhere. But um, even a few years after, um, after Diane's murder, I'd gone back with a film crew, a television crew out of um, Atlanta, and Kigali was still pretty similar those five years later. But when we got to the mountain entrance to the Virunga Park, the Parc de Volcans, you could see that there was a, an improvement in the income of the local economy. The homes were a little nicer, people were dressed a little better, and, and the, the dollars coming in through the organized tourism of gorillas was already making a, an impact in that area. I could see that. So you think that's what it was? That it was the gorilla. Yeah, it was the gorilla tour. It was bringing people in. There were hotels were busy, busier. Uh, it was still a trickle of what would be to come. Now there are thirty thousand people a year visiting the mountain gorillas in that region, and uh, there are big luxury hotels. Well, they're really lodges, safari lodges, nestled into uh, the areas around the Virungas to accommodate this big influx of tourism. And uh, and the Diane Fossey Gorilla Foundation is, is building a $10 million facility right adjacent to the park for uh, conservation, education, and awareness, and a uh, museum. And wow. uh, that that is, Diane is rolling in her grave. <laughs> <laughs> because I would say that the fund in her own name, she would not approve of all it's doing for people in the area and, and the way it has involved the local Rwandans. Uh, that's something else she resisted, unfortunately. Uh, she just refused to uh, sort of believe in the local people uh, being able to take part in their own successes. She just would have been too difficult to work with on that. But the people that have followed in her shoes have certainly embraced inclusiveness and uh, and have made uh, quite a lot of changes in the area. The market, for example, in Ruangari, it was called Ruangari, the town that we get our we'd get our groceries delivered from by the porters, and where the post office was, and there was a small hospital there. <clears throat> that marketplace. When I uh, went back, it was all covered and enclosed. It used to, they used to be vulnerable to the rain. If it rained, they had to just kind of get under their tables and endure the uh, downpour. Rwanda is renowned to, uh, as a, a business success story since the genocide of the 90s uh, that happened and their recovery. Gorillas are reputed to be the number one source of revenues for the country. The number one source of revenue? Yep, I've heard wow. that. Wow. It's really great that, that Rwanda is a positive business success story because you hear about the genocide and there's not much more mm -hmm. that gets into well into the press. You say the Diane Fossey Foundation, what it's doing with the money, she wouldn't agree with. Is this because well she didn't like people or she didn't believe that people could be the answer or what was her problem with people? Uh, well, all of the above. Yeah, I don't think she believed people could be the answer. I don't. Well, she, she didn't think that the local Rwandans could you know, take care of their own resources and cared enough about the mountain gorillas. And, and really, you know, most of them didn't care about the gorillas, but there was a way to kind of bring about change to that. You know, that's, that's what the Mountain Gorilla Project was working on, including Bill Weber would go out and do educational programming in the schools and different communities in Rwanda to explain to them about and demystifying the mountain gorillas, making them aware about the mountain gorillas, and also the importance of the Virunga volcanoes. That, that's what was needed, really. 
education and information needed to be disseminated among these communities to get them to understand. And, and that's something that Diane, if you were to suggested to her, she just would have, you know, shrugged it off and never have had any interest in uh, approaching that, especially because somebody else was already doing it. <laughs> you know, somebody okay. she didn't like was involved with it. She really fought a really small battle between herself and the poachers that had attacked her guerrillas. And she just entrenched herself into that battle with them and thought that was the solution. But I think even in her own mind, because she, she said she believed the guerrillas were just going to all be gone in a matter of years, uh, she was just going to ride them into oblivion. She just uh, couldn't work collaboratively with people. She was her own worst enemy in that regard. So because of that, there's obviously a lot of people that she rubs the wrong way. You mentioned about her murder in 1985, it was, wasn't it? For people who don't know, this murder's never been solved. Do you have any inklings about it? Well, what are your thoughts? when I heard about all the theories of that emerged right after her murder, I immediately thought of Murder on the Orient Express, you know, the story where the murder was committed and it turned out to be everybody and anybody on the train. It was all plausible. Every every theory that came out, it was the government, it could have been a student, it could have been a poacher, it could have been camp staff. She was so antagonistic toward anyone that if, if someone had murderous tendencies, she would have brought it right out in them. She was... Um, you know, provoking everyone, it it almost it it, it foretold itself, uh, self fulfilling prophecy that she would uh, die in battle because um, she went down blazing. She was uh, reputed to be um, telling people quite blatantly that she had information about wildlife trafficking that would bring down a lot of people in the government right all the way up to the president of Rwanda. And she wasn't real s secretive about that. She was quite uh, happy to tell people that she knew all this inside information. And uh, that right there will put a target on you. Did you ever hear stories about that sort of thing happening? Was that sort of thing commonplace in well, Rwanda at the time? Um, I don't know that it was commonplace, but it certainly certainly stories did swirl around about uh, that. I was in Akagira, the the Plains Park, after Diane's death, and I was at a, a lodge there, and a woman whose husband worked in the uh, park system, he was a Belgian expatriate, and she was Belgian, and she, she said that's what everyone uh, was saying and believed was... What happened to her was that it was uh, a contract murder because she was threatening to expose a lot of names and uh, bragging about it um, prior to her death. So for the future of mm -hmm. the Diane Fossey Foundation and of the mountain gorillas around the area, are you hopeful? Are they going to continue improving now that they've, they've got this new uh, multi-million pound facility being built and what did you say, 30,000 tourists a year go to see them? Uh, in in uh, Rwanda and Uganda, neighboring Uganda. Yeah. And uh, really the whole program serves as a model for all the countries in that region that have the mountain gorillas cross borders or share borders with. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it makes me optimistic because the numbers, uh, as soon as there was a census 
uh, a report that there were increased numbers, there was almost right on the back of that another increase in the numbers. So I'm optimistic about the protection of the mountain gorillas in the existing habitat now. But what, what I think really is critical to the um, population long term is to regain some of that habitat uh, that has been taken away from them and increase that and let that population expand in area uh, in order to ensure better numbers for them in the future. And will that be happening, do you think? It's it's happening little bit by degree. The uh, site where the uh, Fossey Fund is building, they are doing plantings to recreate uh, some of the forests to extend beyond its uh, existing boundary. And I know at least one of the lodges that's gone up is creating forest habitat as part of their uh, part of their mission uh, is to reforest around where that uh, that lodge is. And really, it's a good idea business-wise. If you can get gorillas right up and close to your lodge like that, um, you, it would be in your best interest business-wise to uh, create gorilla forest around you. Yeah, charge a lot for those. Yeah, imagine being able to sit with your bottle of beer and look off your deck at uh, mountain gorillas from your own private room. <laughs> Sounds like a great holiday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, typically in these sorts of scenarios, once a population like the gorillas starts improving, you might see the population or recovery of multiple wildlife species. Have you? Do you know much about that? Is that happening as well? Well, I think the golden monkey, which is a a species of monkey in the area that we rarely saw. In fact, I never saw them when I was there. And uh, occasionally I'd hear of others that were at the lower altitudes, would see them down in the bamboo zone. And I, I know Peter that I worked with who visited that area on a regular basis. He occasionally would have a sighting of a lone male down there. Um, now they have some tours that go out to see these monkeys. And I think their their numbers have increased since then. I'm not sure about the forest elephants. They um, they were kind of sporadic in the forest there in years prior to my being there. But while I was there, I happened to be fortunate enough to, that they came through the area and, and stayed for quite a while. And I, I got quite a few good looks uh, and a few uh, exciting moments among the forest elephants. But I haven't really heard reports on their populations. I. I I hope that they're getting more protection, that their numbers will increase over time. But uh, I haven't really heard much about them being in the area. Mm, you'd hope so. If there's less poachers, less people working in that industry, yeah. you would expect maybe that the elephants aren't being poached either. Well, it was often believed that if they were, uh, they'd come up into the mountain areas because there was heavy, heavy poaching down in the lower areas that they might have preferred. So maybe if they're not up in the Vrongas, they're they're happily uh, feeding in their lower areas. I know there's a lot more protection over there on the Congo side than there used to be, but it's still not uh, as great as it needs to be. Did you always keep like a diary or good notes of all of this? Because looking back on it from, from 1980, remembering all the specifics might have been mm -hmm. quite difficult to put into your book. Well, you know, people are kind of shocked at the level of detail I have in the book. And uh, I didn't know that it was it was remarkable to have <laughs> to recall the things that I recalled. But for one thing, 
I've learned that if there's a strong emotional impact associated with an event, you have a memory of that event that that lasts much longer than uh, mm. other other experiences. Yeah, you can remember the smells and the tastes around yes. it as well, can't you? Also, it turns out I do have a good memory. I, di I didn't realize that either until people pointed that out to me. But I had letters uh, that I wrote home, and I kept I had these copious gorilla notes that we were required to make for Diane. And I also had photos that I could look at. So as I reconstructed the story, first from memory, I would bolster it then with letters and my notes. And my goal was to take the reader right along with me through this entire experience. Uh, every every detail at every turn, the scent, the smell, the sights of everything. That was, that was part of my learning to write, uh, was bringing all the senses into it. But I could pull out a, a slide, one of my old slides, and I could say that so-and-so was wearing a blue cardigan, and uh, <laughs> I could tell you what so-and-so had on, and it really takes the reader right into the uh, the scene. And uh, I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed the creative uh, element of creating uh, this experience scene by scene. That's a real skill, isn't it? Making yourself sit down and and work day by day to, to create this. It's a skill that I had to learn. In fact, when I first conceived of this book, you know, I, I realized that when I first arrived in camp, my first week in camp, I remember the experience was so unusual, especially with Diane and who, uh, how she behaved. And I remember sitting down in my cabin one day and going, oh my God, this place should be a book. Somebody needs to write a book about this place. <laughs> and I wasn't really fully aware of Diane working on her own book until I heard her talking about it and saw her in, you know, pecking away at her typewriter. But um, I sat down. I didn't think of myself as being the person that would write it. But um, after I finished my master's degree in college, I had to write this uh, thesis. And I, I wrote it in a very journalistic way. And when I was done with that, I had this kind of momentum to write. And I started writing magazine articles. I thought, well, I, I could work for a local magazine and I could do some writing. And and then one day I was, I sat down to read this book, The Hot Zone, which is, an, I love nonfiction and uh, journalism, journalistic reports. And I, I liked the way this true story about the Ebola virus. Are you familiar with the book, The Hot Zone? I'm not, no. Uh, try reading the first five pages of that and putting it down. <laughs> But uh, it begins with the man's meanderings in Africa, in East Africa, and he's starting to come down with the Ebola virus. He doesn't even know it, know what's happening, but I love the way this story drew me in, and, and I thought to myself, I have a story I could tell uh, that I think would be of interest to people, and it would take them to a place that you know few have ever seen. And her own story, you know, Diane's own story, she really removed all the people that were around her. In fact, her editors at one point said, what, what about other people? I mean, didn't you interact with anybody? Well, there was a lot of interaction going on, but she didn't write about that. I, I then sat down, I, I went to the, I went and got a book called Everything You Need to Know About Writing Fiction and Nonfiction and Getting It Published. <laughs> and I bought this book and I sat down, it's a, it's a small book, it's real concise. Pat Cubis is one of the authors of it, and I ended up emailing her eventually, but um, it was the beginning of the email era and, and the World Wide Web, and I, um, I looked up a couple of editors' emails, and I, um, 
I submitted a proposal, well, just a really a very scant proposal of this story. I ended up getting, immediately got a response from an editor at one of our biggest publishing houses, Simon & Schuster, the chief um, editor-in-chief of an, another one of our biggest publishing houses, Random House, here in New York City. And I thought, wow, if they're interested, I must really have something here. So um, the Simon & Schuster editor asked me to send in a writing sample. Can you, she said, can you send me a sample of like a chapter you might begin with? And so I sent that in and she had said to me already, she said, if, if we go with your story, well, if you don't have an agent, we'll even find you an agent. And I said, okay. So I sent this writing sample in and she responded and said, okay, well, we're very interested, but first you need, you need to learn how to write. <laughs> I was crushed. <laughs> oh yeah. I thought, but, but you know what they say? You remember J.K. Rowling? I think she went to a hundred different different publishers before she got Harry Potter through. And look at that. Yes, I like to compare myself to her. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's true. It's true. It's amazing what gets thrown out and has to be pick pick itself up and dust itself yeah. off and put itself back out there. And well, it would be many years. But I then thought, well, how am I going to learn how to write? You know, just, you can learn some from a book, but you need feedback on that. And it being the era of the World Wide Web early on, I started to look for um, opportunities for that and ways to do that. And there was this website that was calling itself, it was like an online writer's workshop. It was called, it was called the Writer's Workshop oh, online. Some individuals, it was started by a couple of writers. I didn't recognize them. But I sent my proposal to them, and I heard back from uh, one via email. He said, "We're going to be, uh, we're not really happy with the direct, uh, you know, the doing the website. But I'd happy be happy to take you on with your story and help teach you how to write this." And uh, he said, "You you may not recognize my name, but I'm Rod Thorpe, and I've uh, I've written a few books." And so I googled his name. I don't think I was googling then. I was probably Yahooing then. <laughs> so I yahooed his name <laughs> and he was the author of The Detective which was made into a, a, a well-known movie in the 60s starring um, Frank Sinatra he was involved with the Screen, Screen Actors Guild in Hollywood and he also wrote the book called Nothing Lasts Forever which became the movie Die Hard starring Bruce Willis and I thought wow well, he's, he knows what he's doing <laughs> why, yeah. why is he wasting his time with me <laughs> But he was interested enough to take the time to assess my materials. And I, I remember sending my first writing sample to him, and he came back with so many corrections and, and pointers on things like, you know, you need to write with the active voice, and you need to write with authority, and you need to add more of the senses here, and sights, sounds, smells. And, and it was so marked up that I was, like, crushed, and I thought, I'll never get there. And then... I sent in my second sample with including his recommendations and I, I sent it off and I said, have mercy. And he <laughs> responded back to me and he said, you won't be wasting your time with me just to have mercy with you. And I thought, you know what? That's very true. <laughs> so I began to really start to crave this feedback and really found it, the, the process very interesting of learning this craft and skill of writing and uh, just took off from there. And he got to the point where he said, I'm really enjoying this story now. 
we were going back and forth like this for three months. And uh, I heard from him several times a day. I mean, he really was engaged with uh, this project. And and then I, I said to my wife, I, I would tell her what, I, you know, Rod Thorpe and I were, were talking about recipes for roasting garlic and, you know, we'd have other <laughs> idle chatter. And I said, we were we were heading away on vacation. I said, you know, I haven't heard from Rod Thorpe in like three days. It's the weirdest thing. And when I got back, uh, I got this email and it said, um, hi, John, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry this has taken so long to get back to you, but uh, my father passed away and it was signed Roddy Thorpe. And I thought, oh, Rod Thorpe's dad had died and that's what he was busy with. And I'm sorry to hear that. And then I realized it was actually the son um, telling me that his dad had, Rod Thorpe had died. It was actually the guy, I was, Rod Thorpe, who I was communicating with. And so I he thought, never well, got to see the published copy. No, and he was really looking forward to that. And he was going to help me, you know, with getting it published. And, and it doesn't hurt to have a friend in the movie business either when you're writing. <laughs> <laughs> but how um, amazing to have had that mentor, though. Yeah, it was an amazing mentor. And by then I really felt equipped to move on with the story, and I started really working on it seriously. It was a real, it's a real discipline to create all the realism and recreate the scenes and write in every detail. And I, w I was always an artist too, you know, I like to do sketch art and painting. And I found myself avoiding writing and starting to paint. Um, Is that as an abstract art? From as, an as an escape from being disciplined. And, and yeah. the, the, uh, the painting was such a catharsis to me that I started to think, well, what what is it? Why is painting cathartic and writing laborious? I was trying to find that place where uh, painting and writing were alike in creativity, and I came to the realization that you know an abstract painting is like a poem or a song lyric, and an essay is like a photorealistic drawing. It's a real, really disciplined putting in every little part of the mm -hmm. feather or the eye or the every hair and that's what I was doing with my writing I was putting everything in there eventually I got it I, be, I became a successful artist <laughs> I started I, I was expanding into like 12 different galleries art galleries in the region and making some good money at it too but I had to uh, continue on with the story and I eventually started to lay it out in a synopsis form <clears throat> and then I expanded each each section into chapters. I had an agent, a, a big name in the business. He sent my story out, my proposal out to all the top publishers. In the end, no one no one went with it. They, a lot of people said, "Oh well, no one would remember Diane Foss here. You know, nobody's interested in her anymore." And there was and a lot was of that? this. This was this was back in the early two thousands, so eighteen years ago. And after after every publisher has seen it, you can't really sit, there's nowhere else to send it at that point. So I had to wait a, a few more years, you know. And I continued to work on it and I expanded it. And then I had this really close call with uh, a big publisher, and uh, the editor who would be working with me on it, she loved it. Her editor in chief didn't. There was a lot of polarization because people who wanted uh, really like fun light stories about gorillas had a problem with the presence of Diane, the big um, kind of negative, oppressive presence of her character in the story. 
Is that because they wanted to remember her as someone who was a, a positive force well, for the guerrillas? I think they went in with one idea and what they found was something different than they expected. I always maintained it was a memoir that had guerrillas in it. And I think a lot of people are looking for a book about guerrillas that's happy stories about animals or inspirational stories about animals. And really it's kind of a, in many ways, a dark memoir, which I think there's a, a huge genre for. I, I love a memoir, and if there's a challenging personalities in the story, I find it fascinating. The book is kind of caught in that misconception. For example, on, on Amazon, where it's advertised as in primatology, science and research, uh, primates, apes and monkeys, and it really should be in memoirs. It's a memoir. It's much about people as it is about... Uh, animals and and it's 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 all animal behavior but <laughs> but it's a lot of it is human animal behavior and uh, i think there's a, a population out there that hasn't gotten hold of it yet that would uh, enjoy it mm. and i can tell from some reviews they went in hoping it was a happier kind of tale than it actually is but you can read the reviews on the book jacket and realize going in if you heed those warnings that it's uh, got a lot of angst and anguish in the story. Yeah, well, I suppose in those times with those people, you're just reporting what was true. It's just it's just what happened. You know, it's it, I only had that one story. I even had agents that uh, wanted me to uh, tone down Diane a little bit, and I actually did that in one proposal. My publisher, I ended up with uh, Claiborne Hancock at Pegasus Books. He said, nah, the more the better. You know, <laughs> If it's controversial, just put it in there. And he was totally supportive of my telling the whole full story. But I realized that when I, when I got the book in hand, in print, I realized I can see those places where I kind of toned things down. I forgot to, I didn't put everything back in. Like even some of the foul language I had taken out. And, some, and I, I almost feel guilty that I have, have one particular phrase that is really kind of a cruel thing to say that happened that I toned down and I forgot to tone back up and I'm thinking, well, maybe it's better I didn't. What was that? What was it to do with? <laughs> it was just something she said to Carolyn. See, I was warned in a letter from a board member, the newly formed board of Karasoki, that, uh, that I might hate it there and that some students had left after two weeks. And I thought, well, that that's not going to be me. I mean, uh, what could be that bad? And uh, it's kind of the turning point for Carolyn when she left after two weeks. I think if I had expanded on it, it would have been too much for the reader. So I, I did protect the reader a little bit. <laughs> I don't know if I should have. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's an interesting way to look at this book. So are there positive stories alongside some of the dark stuff that happens? Oh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of positive things. Uh, just the experiences with the gorillas, how my first interaction with them, being with Bonane, the baby gorilla, and also learning how gorillas live. You know, gorillas themselves aren't always nice to each other. Um, so, and you see some mm. of that. And I think maybe that's disappointing to some readers, too. They want you know, gorillas to be better than people, and gorillas are every way like people. They can be harsh to each other. Did you see the David Attenborough documentary a little while ago, Chimpanzees? I think there was a series of five of them called, it, it was uh, Dynasties. And uh, yeah, one of the families that they followed for 
I think a year or so, is the chimpanzees. I know about that story, and it really is chimpanzees. They really resemble humans in so many ways, uh, in warfare even. And I know that the that story, I know the story you're referring to, and I've read, I've read about the documentary. Um, yeah, I hope to see that at some point. You have seen it, I guess. It's really eye-opening. And I think what you were saying about people wanting a nice story from the animals... Mm -hmm. It's not realistic. It's not actually no, what goes no. on in, in nature, really. It isn't. And kind of back to the, um, the issue on zoos, life in the wild is not an easy life. It's hard to survive in the wild, even for things that are meant to be there. Yeah, definitely agreed on that. And I think it's, uh, I think I, I've, I've demystified things in the field work and I demystified life in Karasoki and the gorillas and maybe it's disillusioning for some people. Now, don't get me wrong. Other people find the story fascinating and every bit of it, uh, good, bad, and otherwise, they find it fascinating to be there and see it from a distance and not have to be immersed in it like I was, but uh, to read about it from the safety of your own home <laughs> is a thrill. <laughs> I hope. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to reading it. And uh, one of the things that first drew me in when I saw it, when I heard about you, was the, the photo of you with that baby gorilla. Yeah, that was actually with Pablo. That was one of the, that wasn't the uh, orphan baby. Uh, um, it was a, a gorilla in group five that had been orphaned by its mother when she transferred out of the group. And he had really taken to everybody else in the group, including the researchers, and was the most extroverted of the group and sought friendship really for lack of a, another word with the um, the gorilla researchers people would often ask me how close did i get to the gorillas and it was more a question of how close did they get to us and they did pablo would come and sit in your lap and knock you over if he felt like it and, uh, <laughs> you just you just let him <laughs> god that'd be absolutely amazing uh -huh. right i've taken up enough of your time um is there anything else that you want to tell everybody no, I think we've covered a lot of territory, so I really appreciate your interest, yeah. and I hope I've interested you in reading the book. Well, me personally, definitely, and I'm sure you will have uh, most of my listeners too. Um, where can they find out any more information about you or about the book? Well, of course, it's always uh, a Google away. Everything's a Google away, and um, my book <laughs> is available on Amazon. Um, the paperback is due out uh, in mid-June, so the hardback is, is its uh, first edition form, and there's limited numbers of those remaining, but paperback is coming out uh, very soon. So uh, you can order that as an option. Great stuff. All right, thanks for everything. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. It's so fascinating learning Thank about- you. It's my pleasure. Your time in the mountains with the gorillas. It's incredible. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, so get out there and buy that book. A Forest in the Clouds, My Year Among the Mountain Gorillas in the Remote Enclave of Diane Fossey by John Fowler. Uh, check him out on Twitter as well. He's at John D. Fowler, and he's got a link to his website on there as well. What an amazing story. What an amazing storyteller. I can't believe how calm and nonchalant he was about that gorilla on top of him. I think most people would have just crapped themselves. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. Just to let you know what is around the corner. In my next episode, I'll be speaking to a man 
who knows everything there is to know about Mars, how to get there, when we're going there. He even wants to go there himself. So I'm looking forward to sharing that one with you. Thank you again, Laura James, for this beautiful music. Cheers for listening to all these podcasts. I do really appreciate you all. I'd like to hear from you, so leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Get in touch with me on Twitter, at FascinatePod. Also, hit that subscribe button, and I'll be forever thankful. Cheers for listening. See ya.